All right. Well, this is the uh, second message of this four-part series that we're doing uh, called Lessons in Unity. And so last week, if you were here, you will remember that the, um, that the message really focused on the Trinity and sort of how the diversity that's inherent in the Trinity can be viewed by us as a model for a multi-ethnic church. And so we really made four points. The first was that unity is inherently part of God. The Trinity being three persons in one, and so that, that unity is just part of the Godhead. Second was that uh, we can sort of look at the Trinity and the fact that we are made in God's image uh, as a basis for believing that God desires for all of us to be in relationship with one another because God's in relationship with himself. And so therefore, uh, it's not a stretch to really believe that that's what he intended for us as well because he made us as relational beings. <clears throat> Third <clears throat> was this idea that the Trinity itself is a relationship of love, right? That love is the basis for what, uh, for the relationship the Trinity has and therefore should be a basis for the relationship, <clears throat> excuse me, that we have with one another. Um, and that means sometimes loving people who are not exactly like you, right? If we're going to love unconditionally, then we don't go out and just choose the people that we're going to love and, and ignore the rest. We have to, um, to love everyone and love should be what dictates our relationships with other people. And then finally, the fourth point was that we, the Trinity sort of gives us this model for thinking about and maybe experiencing the divine community or this idea of a divine community as a place where all kinds of people could kind of lovingly coexist and people can be different without being divided, which is the way the world tends to look at um, differences in many cases. So today, we're going to look at uh, a very well-known story from Scripture, the Tower of Babel. And it's from Genesis uh, chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. And uh, this story looks at unity from a completely different perspective. And what happens in this story is that we don't see unity being celebrated. We see unity being dismantled. And what's the reason for that? Well... As we're going to see, this is one of the strongest affirmations in Scripture that God is the only adequate center of unity, right? That if, if we're not focused on God, then everything else uh, tends to have a, a negative impact, and it's going to end in confusion. So let's just take a look at the story now. So starting in Genesis 11, verse 1, it reads... <clears throat> At one time, all the people of the world spoke the same language and used the same words. As the people migrated to the east, they found a plain in the land of Babylonia and settled there. They began saying to each other, let us make bricks and harden them with fire. In this region, bricks were used instead of stone and tar was used for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. This will make us famous and keep us from being scattered over all the world. But the Lord came down to look at the city and the tower the people were building. Look, he said, the people are united and they all speak the same language. 
After this, nothing they set out to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down and confuse the people with different languages. Then they won't be able to understand each other. In that way, the Lord scattered them all over the world, and they stopped building the city. That is why the city was called Babel, because that is where the Lord confused the people with different <clears throat> languages. And in this way, he scattered them over all the world. <clears throat> Pretty interesting story, and there's a lot going on here. So just a few points that I want to pull out of this, because there really is a lot you could talk about here. Uh, but as it relates to unity, I think uh, just a few, a few things that I've noticed as I looked at it. The first really was that unity, I think we can say from this story, was God's original intent. Okay? Clearly it says at the very beginning of, uh, of this passage, at one time all the people of the world spoke the same language and used the same words. Now, this sort of makes sense if you really think about it, because everybody that would be in the world at this point is descended from Noah and his family, okay? And so no reason to believe that they wouldn't be all be speaking the same language because they were all related in some way or another. But there's really no reason to believe it wasn't that way before the flood either. Um, <clears throat> to my knowledge, there's really nothing in scripture that supports the idea that there were different languages present up to this point. Uh, really, that gets introduced in chapter 10 in what's called the, uh, oh, the list of nations, really. And it goes through all of the descendants of uh, Noah's family and so forth. And there's this whole set of nations, and it says in each case that there were different languages present in each. You might say, well, okay, well, doesn't that mean that the Bible's out of order? Because in chapter 11, we actually have the story of how that happened. It, really, I don't think that's the case. I think what you find in 11 is sort of a, uh, an emphasis or a way of going a little bit deeper into how that happened, even after it's explained that it did happen. So we're not really looking at it from a chronological standpoint. It's just a further elaboration of something uh, that was already stated. Now, as I was looking at various uh, resources about this, Found fast, what I found fascinating was that this is not the only place this is mentioned. There actually is an account of a time when all mankind spoke a single language and it's uh, preserved in Sumerian in an epic that was entitled Emmerkar and the Lord of Arata. A-R-A-T-T-A, -T -T -A, Arata. <laughs> it speaks of a time when there were no wild beasts and only harmony among people. The whole universe in unison spoke in one tongue. Uh, and then the story goes on to talk about how there was a point at which speech was changed and contention was brought in. Uh, now, there's nothing else in the story really that sort of parallels the story of the tower that we find in scripture, but we can at least see that this idea of, um, of a deity sort of confusing speech uh, was some kind of an ancient theme. So. You know, a lot of times we find books that are written based on historical events. And that's very well what could be going on here. So the only point I'm trying to make here really is that this is just another example of unity being what God had in mind all along. And as I'm going to illustrate next, it's sin that kind of gets in the way of that. It's sin that interrupts this. 
And that results in this sort of loss of communication and, and ultimately a loss of unity. Now, you could play devil's advocate here and say, well, wouldn't unity have been lost anyway if everyone had actually obeyed God and had gone out and scattered and spread throughout all the earth as was commanded? And I think that's true, but if you follow that line of thinking all the way through, you would ultimately end up with a reunited humanity who would very likely still be speaking the same language. You know, now, <clears throat> might there be differences? Well, possibly. I mean, I think that's reasonable to assume. You know, we all of the English speakers in the world don't speak exactly the same way. There's different dialects and different accents and things like that that have developed over time. But I don't think it's, it's like you had, would have a group that started out speaking, let's say, English, and at the end of the day, they were all speaking Chinese. You know, I just don't see that as being, you know, what might happen in that instance. So I think they're still going to end up, even if they had obeyed God, in uh, speaking relatively the same language. So first, I think the story shows us that unity was God's original intent. Okay. Second, we see that disunity was brought about by disobedience. And so scripture shows us that there were two purposes that the people decided to build this city and this tower for. First, they were seeking immortality based on their achievements. Now the name, it says they wanted to make a name you know, for themselves, make their name famous. That really essentially says they were looking for some sort of rep, um, <clears throat> Uh, they're uh, enhancing their reputation or fame or whatever you want to call it, but that's what they were kind of seeking here. Um, it was just a manifestation of their independence from God. You know, well, we don't really need God. Uh, so they embark on this massive building project. And in, in rebelling in that way, they essentially hope to create such a reputation for themselves that future generations would sort of remain there and continue to honor those who had originally built this, right? It's like they built, were building a monument to themselves. Now, I think that's, in some regards, natural. I mean, humans, if we're honest, we want to make a difference, right? You know, we would hope that our lives count for something, that we make a difference in this world in some way. And I don't, this is, this is just me, this is no statistical fact, but I think deep down this is not, um, well, let me put it this way, this could be at the root of a lot of what you find when people have midlife crises. They, they get to a point in their lives where they realize it didn't really turn out the way they had thought it was going to. You know, they had had these great hopes, great dreams, great plans, how they were going to make an impact, and now they hit, you know, whatever age you want to pick, 40, 50, 60, whatever midlife is now. And they realize, well, oh, gosh, none of that happened. And so, you know, this depression kind of kind of sets in because they come to the realization that there's more behind them than there is in front of them, more of life anyway. And... Uh, and so, you know, it's this natural human desire that we have to make a difference. We want to make a difference. And then we, we can get upset when we find out that we haven't. 
So that, you know, that's why I say that there was, a, you know, some sort of a natural tendency in this. It's not right, but I can see it as being natural. And secondly, what the text tells us is that they were trying to assure themselves of a strength that would come from being united. Now, as a unified group, they're thinking they could be powerful and what they're thinking, but not necessarily saying is without God, right? You know, they're just, they've decided that they're going to be kind of in control of things. Uh, and so they somehow thought that by building this great city and by building this tower, um, that that was going to be enough to somehow prevent them from having to fulfill what God's plan for them was, which was that they should be scattered over the face of the earth. Now back in Genesis 1.28, we read that God wanted humanity to be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth and subdue it. That was the command that he gave. All right? Well, they hadn't done that. They'd all just kind of hung around together. And so the Lord repeats this once again to Noah and his family in Genesis 9.1. It says essentially the same thing. But clearly, if you base it on what God's reaction was, the unity that they were so intent on keeping was not in keeping with his command. In fact, it was sin. And so God determined that by confusing their language to prevent the increase of this sin through their ungodly association and to essentially frustrate, you know, the design that they had on staying together and making this monument to themselves. And so he turns unity upside down. And so what, what the people considered was their greatest strength, which was to be unified, all of a sudden he destroys by confusing their language. And the thing that was probably their greatest fear, which was to be scattered, now becomes their reality. And so through this disciplinary and disunifying act, God ultimately enhances our world because he creates this rich myriad of diverse cultures and ethnicities that kind of come through this. But I think what's even more enlightening about this story is that it really illuminates just how complex unity is and how there can be a dark side to it as well. You know, we, we sort of originally in, in regard unity as being a positive, as being desirable, and as being in tune with God's purposes. But, you know, here because this, the unity that they've achieved and promoted really stands against God's will for them to be scattered and spread, that the unity is seeking self-preservation at all costs. And so God has to resist it and acts to make sure that the divine order is carried out and that the people are scattered. Third, obedience to God's desire for church unity really requires us to kind of get beyond our own self-interest. And I think this is the lesson that we take away from this text um, in regards to unity that's born out of our own self-interest. 
You know, I think too often the church has a tendency to act this way. We focus on ourselves, on our own little cliques, those things that are close to home, and we avoid God's directive to really go and spread out. And I think it's true <clears throat> primarily in two areas. It's true <clears throat> when it comes to evangelism, <clears throat> and it's true in many cases when we talk about changing the ethnic makeup of the church. You know, we, there's this willingness that many people have to welcome other races and cultures. But only as long as the church ethos, the worship service, and other areas of people's personal preference don't change. But one author points out that we only truly achieve unity when we regard it as a gift that's found in those things that aren't tangible or centered on our own self-interest. And so unity is forged most successfully in getting beyond one's own kind on behalf of the word of God in the world. Now in context, those comments really apply most specifically to the Great Commission. But I think they also point directly to an attitude that's really needed for change to take place in regards to the, the composition of today's churches. Now one of the things that the story teaches is that the right kind of unity occurs only when God's will is sought. We've talked about that. It also teaches us that diversity exists in God's intention for the world. I mean, we can see that immediately when we just look at the creation story and how varied all of creation really is. But I think the other thing that kind of comes out of this story in an indirect way is, is a message of hope. Great hope, really. Hope for us individually and hope for our church as a more diverse place. And if you sort of look at this story in the context of the first 11 chapters of Scripture, there's a pattern that you see. Humanity sins, and then sin leads to punishment because the result of the sin then become clear. But then there is this word of divine grace so that in the punishment there is also restraint and preservation. And then finally there's this promise of hope for the future. For example, in the garden we find Adam and Eve falling into sin. God's word of judgment is then spoken against the serpent, against the ground, and against them. But then he makes them close. And he allows their life to continue, albeit outside of the garden. And so we find present in the story that there's grace and there's hope. In the story of Cain, we read about Cain's murderous sin killed his own brother. And then God's word of judgment comes upon Cain. Cain was sent away as a fugitive, but in grace, God puts a mark of protection on him. 
And so civilization begins. And once again, there's this hint of hope. Then we look at the narrative of the flood. And after God sees the wickedness of mankind on the earth, he brings this deluge as a judgment on evil. But in grace, he shuts up Noah and his family in an ark of safety. He holds on to the reins of the storm and gives them promise of a new creation and a new beginning. And so this covenant of grace is then sealed with a rainbow of hope. And in each case, the story leaves us open to God with the possibility that faith and hope and love might still grow. But in the story of the tower, at the end of the story, we seem to be left with disintegration and scattering and separation and confusion. There once again has been sin and there once again has been judgment. There was even a measure of restraint and protection. But where is the hope for the future? How can life now go on? And I think it's when we finally begin to appreciate that this, this pattern of sin and judgment and then grace and hope that we realize all the more forcefully that this story in particular just kind of leaves us with sin and judgment. It's almost like the story forces us to ask, Lord, what now? But that's a good thing. Because it's at this point in that asking that we're ready for the next chapter. And so for the individual, the story illuminates the human condition. Just like the people on this plain in Babylonia, we all start out with this goal of making a name for ourselves. And we do it in a way that we think is best. That we think is best. Then we come to the real realization through some means that everything that we thought was really important actually isn't. And we finally ask, oh Lord, what now? And see, it's because we ask that God helps us make this transition from my will be done to thy will be done. And then the story, which is our story, was on track to end in sin and judgment gives way to grace and Jesus and eternal life. For our church, desiring to form a multi-ethnic community, there is hope in the next chapter as well. For it's there in chapter 12 of Genesis that God begins to reverse the judgment that occurs at Babel. Because the next story brings us the story of Abram, soon to be Abraham, through whom we are told all the families on earth will again receive blessing. 
the very beginning of chapter 12, it says this. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's home to, house to the land I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed, shall be blessed. And see, like Abraham or Abram at this point, we have, I believe, a command of God to leave the place that is comfortable and familiar and go to one that is definitely less so. Like Abram, we have only the vaguest sense of where we're going and not a real clear picture necessarily of how we're going to get there as we begin this journey of trying to foster a community that's diverse. And so like Abraham, we must also rely on God's direction and the promise that he is the one who will show us how to get there. And like Abraham, we have God's assurance that if we will go, a wonderful blessing awaits us. And it's not just a blessing for us, but a blessing through us as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we continue to see in the scriptures how your heart is ultimately for a united bride. And that even in the midst of punishing disobedient humanity, there was always a way that that unification would occur. So we pray now and we ask that you would use us as an instrument of unity. That you would give each person here a love for people that are not just like them. That you would help us deal with any issues that we may have. And that your blessing would be upon us that we may in turn become a blessing for others that might choose to make this their family and their place of worship. So Father, we thank you now for the person who is the greatest unifier in human history, the Lord. And let's pray. Father, I just praise you for, for your word and for your people, and I, I praise you as well for mothers. Lord, that we celebrate on this day. Just bless them, Father. Whatever there is that uh, families have planned, just pray that you would be in that. 
and that they would be honored for all that they do and all that they have done. We thank you for each one and for the fact that they really never stop being moms. And we like that. So bless all of us as we leave this place and as we go out into the world, give us strength and boldness for all that we have to do. Help us to see things that, uh, that you see, to see with your eyes. We give you praise, Lord, and honor and glory, and we ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.